From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 157, and I'm by myself again today. I'm doing one of my nerdy deep dives into the Ingmar Bergman Cinema Collection, uh, the giant Criterion box set. So we are on the second to last uh, set. And this set comprises of um, the following films. Persona, Thirst, Port of Call, Cries and Whispers, Waiting Women, Brink of Life, and Autumn Sonoda. So uh, less films than a few of the other sets, I think. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah, it's like a walk in the park for uh, these Bergman sets. A couple of these films I've seen before, and I'm looking forward to revisiting, because when I watched these films, I was in my early 20s in film school and watching them just because I was supposed to watch these films, and not necessarily because I wanted to watch these films, but I found now that I've, I've had a little bit more life experience and I've matured, these films take on a whole new meaning and, uh, and present a lot more depth, or at least things that resonate with me that I didn't fully appreciate when I was younger. Uh, so yeah, so without further ado, first up is Persona, which I have seen before, um, and is definitely one of his, uh, more famous films. I think it's famous for that image of the two women's faces kind of lining up, one in profile and one where it towards us. Uh, so I have seen this film before and I remember it a little bit, but, uh, I definitely... Uh, it it kind of washed over me, so I'm really looking forward to rewatching it right now. Persona. Okay, first of all, I'm not going to lie. A film like this is daunting to talk about. Uh, I I read somewhere once that I think the only other film that's been written about more than Citizen Kane is, in fact, Persona. Uh, Susan Sontag wrote a a famous essay on it at the time where I think she was the one that pioneered the concept that the two women were, in fact, one and the same woman, although the film clearly, uh, you know, gives that perspective as well or at least alludes to uh, the idea that that might be true. Here's the thing. This is a kind of kind of film that makes me feel really inspired and intrigued. I think there's these moments in this film that are just so powerful and emotional and raw. Uh, but then it's just coupled by all this other stuff that, you know, to be honest, makes me feel kind of dumb sometimes. It feels like, 
you really have to spend a lot of time peeling back the layers that is, you know, the, the I don't want to say onion because an onion sounds unpleasant. But, you know, the layers that is the onion of this film, it's there's so many different layers. And if you want to go down the path of the same person, you, you totally can. And there's lots of evidence to support that, too. Uh, you know, it's also Bergman making a comment on cinema itself and how, you know, is this just is the nurse just another role uh, of Elizabeth's, you know, or or is she the role or who who's the real person is Alma Elizabeth is Elizabeth Alma. Are they separate entities and they just need each other? You know, he's got that that great imagery where their faces meld together. That is very iconic in cinema and probably one of the more iconic imageries of Bergman in and amongst a sea of iconic images from the man's films. Um, you know, that scene when B.B. Anderson is is telling about the orgy she had on the beach, I think, with uh, the two men and then the subsequent abortion. It's just so... It's an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you, you find the whole thing to be very. You're, you're drawn right in. You know, it 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 it's you know sexually exciting, and then just turns horrifying. You know, it's a, it's a real amazing piece of writing, performance, and just the way it's shot and and everything. It's it's a super powerful sequence in the film, and then you get. You know, the stuff that follows from there, I mean, that's really when the film kicks off. Leading up to that, it, it it's a bit slow. It takes a bit to get going, with the exception of that opening montage uh, of, uh, of cinema and, and, you know, Christ-like imagery with the nails in the hands and whatnot. Uh, but it's that scene where she reveals that part of herself, and then the subsequent scene where... Alma reads the letter that Elizabeth's written to the doctor where, where she finds out that this woman is exposing all of her her things that she's told her. Uh, and I love that moment that follows next to where uh, Alma comes back and she's put out, she's dropped that glass and, and it's left on the ground and she purposely leaves it hoping that Elizabeth will uh, will step on it and hurt herself. And, and the first time I think I watched this, I was like, oh, she just wants to hurt her for what she did. But the other, the thing that occurred to me this time around was like she's just getting her to speak, because what's amazing about Liv Ullman's performance in this film is that she spends so much of it just in silence, just listening, and it's a tremendous tremendous performance given that it's mostly that. Uh, you know, she has maybe a handful of lines at best in this movie. She's mostly meant to be an observer taking in this other woman who uh, can't stop talking. is a, a wonderful chatterbox. Uh, but I wondered now if it wasn't just for her to elicit and make her say something and start some kind of a conversation. Uh, either way. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the kind of film that I could and probably should spend an entire episode on dissecting. It's that rich uh, and just full of, you know, imagery and just... It, it, it's it, it, again. I could go on and on forever about this film, and I wouldn't do it justice. And there's a million essays and books, complete books and documentaries, just on this film itself. Uh, so I'm just gonna probably end up repeating what other people have said. For me, I, I can see how this could be the film that people see as Bergman's uh, overall artistic masterpiece. I could see how this film would frustrate a lot of people because it could come off as melodramatic and, you know, 
mildly pretentious, if not overtly pretentious, uh, given given some of its imagery and, and how it's presented. But for me, I watch it, and it, it kind of inspires some emotion in me. You know, even though I, I can't necessarily put my finger on it or say that I understand entirely everything that's going on or what Bergman's trying to get at completely, there is something that affects me emotionally about this film. And so... Under that guise, it's a success, you know, for me. I, I really enjoyed revisiting it. I found it, it brought me along, and, uh, and I dug it, you know? So that's Persona. And next we'll be back with a double bill of Thirst and Port of Call. So I just finished a double bill of Thirst and Port of Call. They're both short films, so it was easy to crank on to a marathon screening. Uh, this is an interesting period. It's, it's 1949 and 1948 released, respectively. It's interesting that the, the criterion put them in this order, because Thirst was made after Port of Call, but they have you watch it uh, first in the order. Anyway... What's interesting is these are a period where Bergman's making, you know, two or three films a year within the studio system. And so he's experimenting a lot and he's discovering his style. And it's interesting watching uh, watching him come into it. I think it's not until uh, a couple of films later that people would say he's kind of landed into it. But you're seeing a lot of themes here, particularly Thirst... Uh, is is very Bergman-esque in this longer takes. Uh, it's themes for sure, but even Port of Call has has the themes that feel familiar to Bergman. I mean, what's really amazing about these films and, and keeps and I have to keep on thinking of the the context of the time within they're made, which is you know post World War II, and you know just how raw 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 family values all American films are at this time. These films are like. I don't want to say the exact opposite, but they they don't wallow in depression, but they allow for it. They 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 don't um, dissuade the humanity of what's going on in the world, and also the feelings. But it's like characters are, you know, they're having affairs with each other. They're, you know, they have pasts, they have histories. You know, this the 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 lead of Port of Call is uh, is a woman who has been around. She's not a saint. Her mother calls her a slut, you know, uh, and this guy has to contend with with whether or not how he feels about that and if he can accept that she has a past, uh, you know, and we, we don't get films like that until at least the 70s in America. I mean, even in, in 1997, I think it was, I want to say that's the year, you know, Kevin Smith's making Chasing Amy, which is essentially the same story, although in that he's got her as a lesbian with a backstory. But it's the same idea. It's like these people dealing with those pasts, and uh, and so for a film that was made, you know, seventy years ago, that's pretty amazing, and and I think progressive. Also, to tell women's stories the way he's telling women's stories, you know, even though it's a male gaze doing it, I would say it's it's a pretty unique for for that time in history. You know, when you look at either the other European masters, you get Truffaut, and he's you know telling stories about Anton Donnell, and they're all very male focused. 
Uh, I, I really, I mean, I gotta say, thirst. I don't say I don't want to say it bored me, but it, it took me a bit to stay with it. Where Port of Call, I thought was great. I really, really loved Port of Call, and uh, and was drawn in by the by the two characters and just you know the world they're in and, and dealing with. Um, I think it's uh, it's uh, these are fun films because we're, we're, they're not again they're not perfect. But you're really seeing Bergman experimenting and, and, and discovering his voice and, and figuring it out uh, to the point where we'll really see him come into his masterworks in the upcoming years from here. Uh, so, yeah, so I dug these ones. I mean, I dug Protocol. Thirst was okay. Uh, it wasn't great, but it wasn't bad either. It had, uh, I think it, it started to see his visual stamp um, a lot more. But uh, but protocol I found to be really engaging in terms of of the two characters and their relationship and dynamic with each other. I was drawn in by them and I wanted I wanted them to succeed with each other. Where thirst, I don't know. I didn't feel the connection between the characters. It felt a bit cold and aloof. So that didn't quite work for me uh, the way that Port of Call did. Yeah, uh, so next up is a film that I, I have seen before, but I'm really looking forward to revisiting because I've only seen it once. Uh, it's Cries and Whispers. So this brings us to Cries and Whispers. You might hear some some light rain in the background. Uh, it's raining outside my screening room. So I'd seen this film uh, before, but it's been a long time, probably close to at least ten years, and I forgot how how much of an emotional roller coaster this film is. It starts off very slow, very methodic, um, all, all to a point, and it takes a while to really get you you going into the film but that's all by design but once it gets going it's just this roller coaster of emotions for me especially i mean you know some backstory on me my mother passed away when i was 16 of cancer which it's never said what agnes dies of in this film uh so this film is essentially about a woman dying and her two sisters and her servant uh at her bedside and telling uh, the story of her death, but also flashbacks and interludes from the past. And as someone who watched their mother pass away and, and die when they were a teenager, I can tell you that Harriet Anderson, as Agnes's portrayal, is shockingly accurate. It's a bit melodramatic in the screaming uh, compared to my experience. That doesn't mean it's not accurate. Uh, but like the way they put the dried lips, the breathing, the labored breathing is so... It, it brings me right back to my mother's death two decades ago, and it breaks my heart all over again in, in a really wonderful and powerful way. So kudos to Bergman for capturing that. I can't imagine uh, he didn't watch someone else die himself, given the accuracy of just the portrayal of it. Everyone in this film is on fire in terms of performance. It's just amazing. You know, we get this great scene between Liv Ullman and Erlen Josephson 
who play former lovers. He's the doctor of the family. And he has this great scene where he has her just look in the mirror and tell her how she's changed and how she's basically hardened and become a different person, even though she still looks the same in theory. It's this really beautiful and disarming and, and hard scene. Uh, and then we get the flashback of Corrine, the the older hard sister, the strong one, which is... That's the scene that always stuck with me when I saw it the first time, the scene where she takes that piece of cut glass and... I'm not quite sure what she's doing with it. Is she masturbating with it? Is she just stabbing herself? It's it's not exactly clear. Uh, and I don't exactly understand why it's there in the film, but it's definitely one of the images that, that sticks strongest to me in Bergman. You know, in a film that's already so steeped in red, uh, it stands out all the more against that, that white uh, bedrobe or whatever she's wearing. The character of Anne... Uh, is the only one of real warmth in the movie, and she's literally providing Agnes with warmth throughout the film. Uh, It's a really interesting and melancholy film uh, about about death and life and and how we we deal with it. And you're just left kind of hating the other two sisters by the end, even though they've grown closer. You know, the way they just coldly deal with Anne at the end saying, well, she's young and strong, she can take care of herself. That's at least, that's Corrine's shithole of a husband is saying that. Uh, but no one disagrees with him or, or speaks against him. So, you know, screw them as well. I really, really enjoyed revisiting this film. This is definitely one of Bergman's best films as far as I'm concerned. It, it continues to, it's one of the films that haunts me. After I watch it, it sticks with me for days and days. And it's so simple. It's just, it all takes place inside of one giant house. All the flashbacks, um, all the scenes in the present. Uh, I believe I read somewhere that Bergman uh, basically paid for this film out of pocket and had everyone work for free uh, or for shares in the film, in the profits of the film. And because it's people like Sven Nyqvist his longtime cinematographer, uh, who, who had severe loyalty to him, uh, they were willing to do that. And I think the film was even decently received in Sweden, uh, his own country, which it wasn't common because Bergman films traveled better abroad than they did at home, uh, which I can relate to as a Canadian filmmaker. Uh, it, it's easier to find success in your own country once you've found success in other places in the world. Sadly, so yeah, I really, really dug that, and uh, and I really highly recommend it if you haven't seen it yourself. Next up, we get a double bill of Waiting Women and Brink of Life. So I just finished watching Waiting Women and Brink of Life, and I'm not going to lie, this is going to be a short uh, discussion on those films, because I can't say I I overly love them. Uh, Before I get into that, let me give you a quote that's in the the Bergman uh, giant, wonderful, beautiful book from a 1964 interview from Playboy. 
Bergman says, Women used to interest me as subjects because they were so ridiculously treated and shown in movies. I simply showed them as they actually are, or at least closer to what they are than the silly representations of them in movies in the 30s and 40s. Any reasonably realistic treatment looked great by comparison with what was being done. In the past few years, however, I've begun to realize that women are essentially the same as men. They both have the same problems. I don't think of there being women's problems or women's stories any more than I do of there being men's problems or men's stories. They're all human problems. It's people who interest me. Uh, That sums up Bergman really well. I mean, he is definitely one of the people who uh, did women better at this point in in cinema than most people did, or at least show them in more interesting ways. Uh, Even though, from what I gather from reading some biographies and whatnot about him, that he didn't have a really amazing relationship with the women in his life. I guess he was quite shitty to them uh, in a general capacity, and and also his children and whatnot. He wasn't the best family man. He was a tortured, fucked up dude. Let's just put it like that. But what he does really well is he shows the the honesty and the realness of humans, and particularly the women who, as he said himself, was not being done that well at this point in time in cinema. That said, these movies, there's an element to them that's interesting, I think, for sure. They're both just these long, drawn-out chamber pieces that are essentially plays on cinema. And i got to say, they are... a, a chore or were a chore for me to get through I found myself really having to focus and, and force myself to pay attention and it's not that the acting and everything isn't working really well and, and wonderful they're just not as engaging as some of his other films I guess for me anyway I'd be curious to know if anyone out there cites these as as their favorite of Bergman's works I'd be kind of shocked I think in general they're seen as as lesser films in his overall canon Anyway, I do look forward, however, to the next film, which is one that I haven't seen that I can remember anyway. Uh, And the final of this Bergman Three centerpiece, Autumn Sonoda. So I just finished Autumn Sonoda. What a powerhouse of a film. I mean, the whole thing is a bit of a, a slow burn for the first half of it. Uh, but that's kind of by design. That's intentional. Uh, really enjoyable to see Ingrid Bergman and Liv Ullman in kind of what's more or less a two-hander uh, film here. Jesus Christ. Just when you think you've seen everything Liv Ullman can do, uh, and you think you've seen her at her best, she pulls out a performance like this, where she's so subdued for most of the movie, but then there's that amazing, phenomenal sequence halfway through the film that's this extended nighttime, bedtime sequence, where she just gives about as raw and emotional a performance as an actor can give. And holy shit... Uh, I was not prepared for that. That That is a scene I will be revisiting many times. Uh, I had to, right after I watched the film, I had to go on social media and uh, and just write a note to actors everywhere 
uh, to please check out this this movie because it is a masterclass in in a raw and powerful performance. I mean, she's screaming and shouting and all that kind of stuff, and so you could you could look at it as window dressing in terms of that, but it's more than that. It's just this phenomenal phenomenal scene that that just had not me. I wasn't bawling through it, but you know, I had this tear in my eye that was just because of the power of it was overwhelming in such a great way. Uh, anyway, really, really loved it. Uh, the film itself is is pretty solid, pretty good. I liked it overall, but I never. Uh, I was not expecting a scene like that right in the middle. Uh, and it's gorgeous, too. It's it's interesting. This is the, the last film that Ingmar made, uh, especially for the cinema. A lot of his work after was just intended for television primarily. Uh, and it's gorgeous. Sven Nickfist has this amazing color palette in it. Wh- what I really liked about this film, too was how it um it was simple um and and understated in terms of the story too it didn't feel kind of pretentious pretentious the way that some of Bergman's work can feel sometimes uh it felt very natural the conversations the relationship leading up to this big outburst everything was just under the surface and under the seams and just kind of like you're just waiting, waiting for that moment. And when it comes, it's so delightful. And then the film kind of, you know, peters out after that. But Jesus Christ, it is worth watching just to get to that, that sequence in the second act. Truly phenomenal. So that's it for the uh, the third centerpiece of the Ingmar Bergman Cinema Collection. Uh, all I have to do is come back. Uh, for the final sequence, the closing night, which is uh, the Fanny Alexander TV and film versions, as well as the making of, which I think I'll include as part of the sequence. I enjoyed this centerpiece. You know, I got to revisit some movies uh, that I really enjoy that I haven't seen in a while. Uh, I got to discover a new favorite for sure in Autumn Sonata. Uh, Autumn Sonata? Um, that's probably how you say it. Uh, and then some that were just only okay that are, are meh. But that's kind of overall with me for Bergman. I'm either blown away or I'm meh. Uh, there's kind of almost no in-between for the most part. So yeah, so I really enjoyed this. Uh, and I'm it's kind of bittersweet as I'm getting close to the end of this collection. Although that said, there's so many bonus features I have not dug into. It, it's almost There's almost a double... <laughs> Double content with that when you look at it. Even Autumn Sonata itself has a a documentary on the making of, which is double the length of the movie itself, Um, which I don't know if I'll get around to, but I I, I definitely will check out the Fanny and Alexander one. So thanks for checking this out. Uh, I'm glad you stuck with me. If you're enjoying this, uh, check out the previous ones if you haven't already, uh, and otherwise... I will be posting the the final installment of this deconstruction of the Ingmar Bergman cinema fairly shortly. I imagine I'll get to Fanny Alexander in the next couple weeks or a month or two, so you shouldn't have to wait too long for it. Uh, Thanks for joining me for Centerpiece 3 of Ingmar Bergman cinema. Let's all go to the lobby. 
Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.